Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. We, uh, as we move through Samuel, we've uh, last several weeks we looked at the anatomy of a fall, what it looked like to go from the person that Saul was in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11 or 10 and 11 to uh, the person that he becomes by the end of the book. And we looked at several of the danger signs, several of the steps that uh, he took that uh, led to his disposition toward God, his disposition toward David and others um, that um, represent um, all that we're not supposed to be. But today, we come to chapter 16, we are introduced to an individual that's already been hinted at several times during Samuel's correction of Saul. He hinted at this one who was better than Saul, this one who was a man after God's own heart, this man who would um, lead God's kingdom, who would be a prototype in some ways, a, a foreshadowing of the ultimate Messiah, the one that's used uh, um, to kind of define what it means to be a king in many ways. Not that he was perfect. We'll see that in a couple weeks. But he is a person who is after God's own heart. And as we look at God's relationship with David, I think that in addition to seeing some, obviously, some foreshadowings of Christ, I think we see some foreshadowings of Christians. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? What does it mean to be a person that relates to and walks with God in a special and a distinct way? I believe that's every one of us who are believers, every one of us who have been uh, bought with a price, every one of us who have surrendered our lives, every one of us who have experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. But I think there's, in addition to that, I think there are some things that, that we can uh, appreciate about that relationship. And, and these are some things that I want to focus on today. What does it mean? What does it look like to be a person after God's own heart? So let's uh, begin reading here in verse 1, and we'll We'll go down through verse 13, and then we'll break down this passage just a little bit more. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and will kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. With the elders of the town met him, he, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly, the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah 
But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons that you have? There is still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending the sheep, Samuel told Jesse. Send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. And the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day forward. And then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage today, as we look at your heart for David and the reality of um, your work, his life and your work in our lives. God, I pray that we'd be challenged. I pray that we would be encouraged, that you would point us to and direct us to places that you would have us go, the realities you'd have us pursue, and the means by which we might walk with you closer in our own lives. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at the realities of God's relationship to David here, there are several things that come out that reflect and reveal what it means or what it looks like to be a person after God's own heart. The very first thing that we always need to begin with, the very first thing we always need to recognize is that it means, and it begins with being chosen by God. Now, y'all know me. You know I'm not uh, a Calvinist or a Reformed person. If you are, that's fine. We just see differently on this, that particular issue. But that's not who I am. That's not my take on the issue. Um, I'm not Armenian either. Uh, if you don't know what those two terms mean, that's perfectly fine too, by the way. <laughs> okay. Um, I believe it's a mystery. I believe there is this tension between God's predestination and sovereignty and man's free will. And that anytime we try and solve that tension, we slip into error. We, we either dismiss ourselves, or we dismiss God. And neither of those is appropriate, from I believe, from a biblical perspective. And so just know going into this particular point that that I, I do believe very much in free will. I do very much believe in our responsibility and, and the roles that we play and you know, making our elect sure and all those elections sure and all those other things that, that come out from the opposing viewpoint. But I want to highlight and emphasize today that this passage and the Bible itself, its emphasis is first and foremost on God. Scriptures are a story of God and who he is and how he works and how he functions, how he relates to us. It all goes back to him. He is the centerpiece. The Bible is not about us, ultimately. It's about him. And, and we can only begin to appreciate what's going on in it and what is, is playing out in it when we recognize his centrality and we look for him here. And in our relationship, in our salvation, Scripture tells us what? It begins with God's grace. It begins with God's goodness. It begins with God's disposition toward us. There's nothing we do that earns our status. There's nothing we do that earns our salvation. There's nothing we do that qualifies for us to be able to boast or brag at all. 
It's his work. He's done everything that's necessary for salvation. And it's significant that, that we recognize that, we acknowledge that. It plays out here in a very clear way at the end of verse 1. Um, it says, I have, in my translation, it simply says, I have selected a king from his sons. My translation here is, has kind of smoothed things out. If you have a, an English Standard Version or a King James Version or a New American Standard Version or some other word-for-word -word translation, you'll notice that it says, I have selected or I have chosen one for me. In the Hebrew, there's a, there's a little added word there. It's a preposition with the first common singular uh, suffix. It's for me. God adds that phrase to the sentence here. And it's very important. God's trying to say something significant about David's selection. Because if you remember back with Saul, who was Saul selected for? The people. Remember the people, they begged and they pleaded and they griped and they whined and they moaned. They were basically us. And God said, okay. Samuel, don't worry about it. They haven't rejected you. They rejected me. I'm going to give them a key. Just like they asked for. Saul was for them. Now that doesn't mean that God was manipulated into it. Doesn't mean that God was not less was less sovereign in that moment. God was still sovereign. God was still in control. God knew what He was doing, and God had a plan even through Saul. But the direction, the motivation, the, the actions were in some ways punishment for the people. And so when God comes to Samuel, says it's now time to to go anoint the next one, He says, "This one's mine." I have selected him for me. And he makes it very overt there. And we need to understand that that, that is, in fact, how salvation works as well. That when God selects us, when God calls us, when God draws us, we're not for us. We're not for our parents. We're not for the church and its growth. We're called we're drawn for him, for his purposes, for his glory. But that's how we live our life. We live our lives to seek to honor him, to praise him, to, to see others come to him. Living and walking in a mindset and in a perspective of his centrality. And with that concept comes, comes all sorts of other concepts about God, obviously, the first and foremost, we see the, the reality of grace. And we're going to talk more about this in, in a moment, but right here at the, at the outset, it's important for us to see and to understand. God doesn't need us, but he wants us. And that's grace. And it's amazing because as Paul says in Romans, we're his enemy. We're his opposition. We're his, his rebellious citizens of his kingdom. 
We are treasonous. And we don't want him at all in and of ourselves. But he wants us. He loves us. He sent his son to die for us. And he continues to be gracious toward us in calling us and drawing us to himself. It also communicates the idea of sovereignty. He is the boss. I, I like to, to, to hear and focus and just kind of reflect on the reality that Jesus is my friend. You know, we read that in the New Testament all the time. No longer enemies, just strangers, so forth, but he's my friend. But if that's where you leave Jesus, you've left him in an incomplete status. Because at the end of the day, Jesus isn't just our friend, he's our king. I like the idea of the church being driven or kind of directed by what we call in Baptist life democratic processes. Okay. In the Baptist polity and our understanding of things, Every member has a say. Every member has a contribution. Every member has a role to play in the decisions we make and the directions we go and the programs we carry out and the ministries we enact. But I also want us to recognize at the end of the day that the church ultimately isn't a democracy. It's a monarchy. The king and Jesus is the king on the throne. God is in control. God is sovereign. And his selection of us enforces that. But it also communicates security. One of my favorite, I guess, I don't know if it's a gospel tune or I don't know what classification it is. But one of my favorite songs is The World Didn't Give It To Me. And what? The world can't take it away. There is security in the fact that God has chosen us. There's confidence in that. There's strength in that. If God didn't need me and he chose me anyway, then guess what? I can't do anything to, to lose it either. Because his selection of me wasn't based upon his need of me. It wasn't based upon something I granted him that if somehow I'm failing to give it to him, he's like, well... I guess I don't need you anymore, so be gone. Because he's self-sustained, because he's sovereign, because he's in control, when he chooses and when he draws, we have confidence, we have security, we have freedom. So in our, in our journey, in our longing perhaps as Christians to, to be identified as the person who's after God's own heart, we begin with the knowledge that he chose us because he chose us, because he drew us, because he has called us. We're already well on our way. Because what? His heart, which in the Bible is the seed of the will, not the seed of emotions, his heart has selected us. So in that way, we already are person after God's own heart. The second reality is that it's not about outward appearance. 
we've all read this passage. Perhaps this is one of um, the best-known passages about David's calling and anointing is that phrase, you know, humans look on the outside or what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. But I find it interesting that, that even Samuel, the person who had seen what happened with Saul, who was what? He was a head taller than everybody else, and he was very handsome, and he was all these other things. Samuel had seen what outward appearances got him with Saul. Even Samuel in this moment, when Eliab comes before him, he says, surely this is the guy. Just look at him. This dude's a stud. You know, he's got to be the next king, right, God? And God's like, nope. He's not the one. He's not the one. Stop looking at people that way. And we get the very real sense with the remaining brothers that Samuel did stop looking at people that way because as they come up, Samuel's like, nope, 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 nope. This is as quick as they're presented. Samuel's like, this ain't the one. But I want you to notice something in the next chapter. In chapter 17, this is the passage of David and Goliath, the most famous story concerning David anywhere. But when David goes initially and he's there and he visits the camp, notice what it says in verse 28 in chapter 17. David's oldest brother, Eliab, listened as he spoke to the men, and he became angry with him. Why did you come down here? And who did you leave those few sheep with in the wilderness? I know your arrogance and your evil heart. You came down to see the battle. What does that tell us about Eliab? It tells us he's not a good judge of character. He's not a person who can see right motivations. He sees what he would be doing in that situation. Because we know from the situation, David's there because his father sent him. David's there because God has led him. David is there because this is the moment God has created to see David elevated and God glorified. That's why David's there. And Eliab completely misunderstands that, completely misrepresents it, completely misses the point. Which confirms for us what? He doesn't have the heart to be the king. He doesn't have the inner qualities, the special mindset, the, the, the God-driven eyes to be the king of Israel. It confirms for us what God has said here in our passage for this morning. Don't look at the outside. This is a man who does not understand my heart, my will, my desires, or my people. It can't be king. It's not about appearance. God looks at the will. He looks at the decisions we make. He looks at the the the, the mindset we possess. And as we consider ourselves today and our role in God's purposes and God's plans, 
and seeking to be obedient to God in what he's called us to and what he directs us to. We so often get wrapped up in the outward things. Well, I can't really speak very well. Or, you know, I, I really just don't have a very charismatic personality. too short, too tall, too big, I'm too little. We start talking about these outward things of why we can't do the things that God has commanded us to do. We make excuses. And God says, stop looking at those outward things. Develop a heart, a mind, a will that's driven by my purposes, and when you have that, you have everything you need to be the person I've created you to be, to do the task I've called you to do, to play the role I've called you to play. The third thing we see in the passage is that it's not about our status. I loved the irony of the fact that they did not even think to call David. Didn't even occur to him. Why? Well, my translation renders the word there in um, verse 11, the youngest. And that's probably a good translation. But the word can also mean the smallest. He was a little guy. So whether he was the youngest or just basically the one that everybody else could tell what to do, those are not mutually exclusive, by the way, being the youngest. He didn't have what? He didn't have the status of the family. Nobody respected David. They just didn't. You can see it in Elias' words that we read from the next chapter. You can see it in the fact that they didn't call him. Nobody respected David. And yet we know from chapter 17 that what? As a shepherd out there guarding those sheep, he was doing what? He was fighting off wild animals, animals that were much larger than him. He was probably, even at this point, already writing psalms to God. This is a person who's already taking on a lot of responsibility, and yet nobody respects him. But God does. But not because of his status, but because he is God's chosen. How many times in the Bible do we see the younger supplant the older? Cain and Abel, very first siblings. Abel's the one who's favored, but Cain is the older. Esau and Jacob. Esau's born first, but Jacob's the, the one whom God has chosen. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael's older, but Isaac is the child of promise. Ephraim and Manasseh, the two children of Joseph. Moses and Aaron. Aaron's the older brother, rightfully the high priest, and yet Moses is the one 
who will lead them. Solomon and Adonijah, the years following this. Adonijah is the oldest son of David. Solomon's the one who gets to become king. Over and over and over again, we see the younger supplant the older. Why? Because over and over and over again, God wants us to understand it's about his grace. Not the one who deserve, quote, deserves it that gets the honor. It's the one upon whom God has placed his hand. And today, in your life, in your experience, in your circumstance, it's not about your status. It's not about your gender. It's not about your wealth. It's not about whether you uh, have great standing in the community or not. God's laid his hand upon you and called you to something. That's all that matters. His blessing, his anointing, his direction should be what drives us in the decisions we make and, and the people that we place in, in positions. How many times have we seen God just thoroughly throw off the expectations and the, quote, rules of man to bring someone forward to do a mighty work, an amazing work? I think of Lottie Moon, her trips to China, her work there. She was a woman, a little woman. She was tiny. And yet she did more to plant the word of God, to start churches, to lead churches, to direct churches there in China than probably any individual in history. God's not interested in our requirements or expectations. He's interested in people who are obedient when he directs. That brings us to the last reality, that it's about being what? Driven by the Spirit of God. The last words that are spoken in our passage this morning are what? The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And what's interesting about this particular report is that nothing extraordinary happens as far as we know. If you remember when it happened to, to Saul, he was counted among the prophets, probably entered into some sort of ecstatic experience. When it happened to Samson, he got great strength. When it happened to other leaders before this, they all performed some miraculous, powerful, incredible event, moment. But here it just says, God was just with David from this point forward. There weren't these, these markers. And, and what Again, what the passage is trying to communicate is that it's not necessarily these outward things that are going to manifest themselves. It's God's abiding presence that are most significant about us being a person after God's own heart. It's what he's doing in our life. He's how it's, he's growing us, transforming us, changing us, driving us, directing us. The stories of the heroes of the Old Testament, stories of the heroes of the New Testament are what? Ultimately stories of spirit and his work. 
hearts and minds. So what does it look like to be driven by the Spirit of God? Just a couple of things. I think, number one, it means that our decisions are based on God's truth. Not our emotions or our desires. In John 16, 13, Jesus says, I'm going to send a spirit who will what? Who will guide you into all truth. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's, it's driven us to, to, to good things. One of the first reports we have of the spirit in Jesus' ministry is what? The spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted. So sometimes that leadership of the spirit is going to be a place we may not enjoy very much. We may not want to be a part of. We may not want to go to. But if we're what? If we're letting the Spirit lead us, and if we're listening to the Spirit, and if we're driven by the heart of God, then it's a place we'll find contentment in, as Paul says. It's a place we'll find confidence and security and strength in, even if outwardly it's not a very pleasant experience. I think driven by the Spirit also means that we, we, we pray prayers that are meaningful. Paul talks about how the Spirit guides us and, and leads us to, to groanings that maybe we don't even understand as we talk to and relate to God. But ultimately, to be driven by the Spirit of God is what? To manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Say, Tim, how can anybody do all that? How can anybody be all that? By yourself, you can't. In yourself, you can't. You get there by listening and surrendering and obeying the Spirit as He guides, as He corrects, as He comforts. You get there by taking personal responsibility when you fail. As we've noted previously, the main distinction between Saul and David is that David could take responsibility where a soul never could. You get there by simply relating to God in a way that acknowledges his position, in a way that realizes our role, and in a way that prioritizes his glory. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. Holy Spirit, we're grateful that you're here today. We're grateful that you're in our hearts and minds and lives and experience. We pray that you would continue to direct and teach and instruct. Jesus, we are so thankful for the price you paid on the cross.
we owe you all that we are. So, Father, we ask today as we come to this time of commitment that you would direct our hearts and minds, that you would reveal to us those places, those things that are present that are not what they should be. Help us to take personal responsibility. Help us to commit to walking closer with you. Use this time for your glory, for your purposes, for your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.